So what I find sometimes is that I, I tell the, the entrepreneurs, you need to dumb it down a little bit. You need to simplify it. You know, I remember when Idris and I were pitching, we were like, you know, there's no physical addresses. The VCs in America didn't understand what that meant. I mean, what does that mean to somebody who gets a letter every day by, by the mailman in their address? You can say it, but they don't feel it. They don't experience it. So I had to physically show them what that meant by actually creating a box. Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement, where every week we bring you conversations, insights, and innovation highlights from emerging entrepreneurial ecosystems all around the world. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, I am joined by a close friend of a close friend of the show, and hopefully by the end, she becomes a direct close friend of the show herself, Joy Adriloni, who in 2015 co-founded Fetcher, which is a Silicon Valley-backed tech company. That was created to tackle the Middle East's no address issue. The company now successfully operates in five countries with a 3,500 person staff and was dubbed the number one startup in the Middle East by Forbes. Um, those are quite the accolades and there's even more than that to it. But uh, Joy, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. So Joy, in your uh, LinkedIn bio, when I was looking up uh, or, or crafting this this intro for you, it says that you've uh, gamified rejection. Yeah. And so can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and, and what that means? Yeah, sure. So, you know, being an entrepreneur is about hearing the word no, um, and you suck. And I, I like to say that word and I say it humorously, but yeah, your idea stinks. No, uh, you know, come back tomorrow. So you get rejection and you get a lot of rejection. And I always say that if you're a person who can't handle rejection, then you need to step off and not be an entrepreneur because it is definitely part of the job. And I don't look at it as a rejection. I kind of have gamified it because I'm like, okay, you said no today, but I know that I'm going to turn it into a yes tomorrow. So being an entrepreneur and gamifying no, you really need to have something that's really interesting, which is no shame. And I, I always laugh at entrepreneurs that have no shame are very, very, it's a, it's like a very, very important quality to have. Because when somebody slams the door in your face and they tell you that this is terrible and you keep coming back, you literally have to be the type of person who's unscathed by rejection and doesn't feel embarrassed by rejection. So definitely no shame, Gene, um, for sure. Interesting. And so when you, when you first came over into the UAE ecosystem and started back in 2015, like, mm-hmm. like tr- trying to execute a startup there, yeah. how has that narrative in that ecosystem changed since then? Well, I think there's been a lot of support. Like the, the government of Abu Dhabi, honestly, has done an amazing job, seriously, of trying to build an ecosystem to support startups. They really have with Hub 71 and what Adio is doing and they, they really, 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 really understand that job creation and, 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 and the growth of, of their country depends on the entrepreneurial spirit. So they've really invested in it. So I've seen a big change. I mean, when I met my partner back in the day in Palo Alto, California, you know, we, we were at the very beginning. I mean, we were at the beginning before any of the ecosystem was built. So we really had the hardest time building Fetcher because we had no advantage at the time. I mean, the entrepreneurs today have a, have a huge different platform than, than we did. So it was tough. And I see a big difference um, because I think 
now, um, especially uh, Abu Dhabi with ADGM and the governance that they have, they really see what the future is and they see the power of the startup ecosystem and they want to be the center. Uh, for eco for startups mm-hmm. um, quickly because it, it moves the economy. And so where do you feel like the gaps are right now in the conversation? Like I, I've noticed, especially with a lot of the content we create in Africa, mm. you know, s- startups are a very important way forward, but there's a whole SME ecosystem that, that, that exists. And it's, it's a major part of these economies. Yes. And sometimes I worry that, you know, we focus too much actually on VC backed models for startups at the detriment of maybe alternative financing based on revenue or, you know, opening up restaurants or coffee export businesses or, you know, a whole cadre of other types of businesses. So where do you feel like uh, when it, when it comes to that core entrepreneurial spirit in the region? I talk to a lot of startups and they are SMEs. They're not venture backed businesses. So there is a blur because when you're doing a startup, you know, you need to have a global capacity. You need to think outside this region because venture capitalists are in the business of making money, period. Right. So what I have found in, in the 200 startups that I have I've listened to is that they are SMEs. But the, like you said, the SMEs definitely drive the economy as well. So I think there is a little bit right now of a blur between what is considered an SME and what is considered a startup, a a VC-backed startup. Definitely there's a blur here. That's a lot of what I've been trying to explain with over 200 startups that I have met with, which is like, look, I love your idea. You should go for it. But this is an SME. Right. It's not a, it's not a venture backed business. How do some of those concepts actually play into your, your role in the ecosystem as an angel investor? So I know you've, you've, you've made some, some investments in, in, in startups. I have. But you know, what is your kind of your thesis for, for your angel investment portfolio? Here's my number one thing. First of all, I have to love the idea, right? Absolutely. I have to love the idea and I have to feel like it's got legs, right? I, as an angel investor, I look for not necessarily a VC opportunity, but some of them are VC opportunities and some of them are SMEs. And again, just like you mentioned, there's a blur between the two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can raise money from friends and family and build a viable business. And, and that business can be acquired, absolutely. And you don't have to raise any venture money. So I, in my thesis, what I do first is I, I look for the, the idea. Do I like the idea? Is it a product that I'm interested in? Is it a business that I'm interested in? Is it a business that I understand? I like to invest in businesses that I get because then I have a clear understanding of it. Mm-hmm. That's logistics and product. Those are my two passions. So I look at the, the idea. Do I think it's got legs? Does it have technology? Is it defensible? You know, and then um, I look at the team. You know, nine times out of 10, even if I'm so, so on the idea, I always look to the team. I mean, to me, the entrepreneur is everything. It's really everything to me. Does that entrepreneur have a background in that space, right? If they come from, let's say, working at FedEx and they've been working at FedEx for 10 years and they see a problem and they've been able to understand the problem because they've experienced it and then they take that experience and then they come up with a solution to make it better, those are the entrepreneurs that I want to invest in. 
because they understand the space, they have experience, and they see a problem and they have a solution. And that's that's that makes my heart pitter patter. Rather than somebody who says, I'm going to get into a space and I don't have any experience in it, but I have an idea. Mm. Um, that makes me as an angel investor a little scared uh, because there's a learning curve. Right. And no, no investors want a learning curve to be on their dime. <laughs> Right? Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's very wise. I mean, I think really, you know, it sounds like what you're aiming for it's it's the passion and the heart combined with you know deep expertise on a certain area and really understanding the whole ecosystem and all the stakeholders involved in the specific problem that you're solving. Absolutely, you've got to invest in a solution and you got to invest in a team. Right. Because I always ask, why you? Why? Why are you doing this? You know, being an entrepreneur is not easy. Being an entrepreneur in the Middle East is extremely hard. I, I've, I have the experience of building a company in Silicon Valley, California, in San Francisco, where our offices were, and uh, exiting. And then I have the experience of building one here in the Middle East. And I can tell you that this is a very, very tough place to build a company. It's challenging. You know, we were there, Idris and I, in the beginning going up against these challenges before the ecosystem became more mature and helpful to startups. So we really, we had the brunt of it. Like we were the trailblazers back then, for sure. I completely agree. I mean, you you all really trailblazed the concept of actually getting serious Silicon Valley VC money to to take a large bet yeah. on, a, on, a, on a VC-backed little Middle East, Middle East startup. Um, that's for sure you know, a, a huge achievement. And, you know, get, I, I do want to dive deeper into that. You know, when you, when you think about, you know, your, your expansion across the region, I mean, you know, when you look at Africa, Middle East, Southeast Asia, a lot of these countries, when you, when you think about that billion dollar exit, you have to be able to expand across the region and capture multiple markets exactly. in order to truly make that case in, in order to make that, that unicorn case. Well, you, you have to have a, a regional solution and then beyond. That was where I was going with the question because it's like most most startups in sub-Saharan Africa, if you win Nigeria, you expand into maybe Kenya or mm-hmm. Ghana or another African country. But you know, when you look at the Gulf region, like what markets scaling beyond that region become attractive to you? Like, do you go to North Africa? Do you go to Europe? Do you go to China or Africa? Like, what what shaped your kind of expansion beyond the region? Well, look, I mean, we go to Egypt, and Egypt is very similar to Nigeria. Right. As far as the way things are done and the demographics. So, you know, we always believed, Idris and I, that if we could tackle and, and win Egypt, that Nigeria would have been the next step for us, for sure. Mm. The address problem is persistent. Oh, yeah. I mean, half the world has no physical address. And when we were pitching in Silicon Valley, that was really interesting pitch the venture capitalists who have a mailman knocking on their door <laughs> and explain to them, you know, that there was no addresses. And that's a really interesting thing too, when you're trying to raise money, which I found was a big problem with a lot of the startups, is that they try to speak to you on a super high level um, because they want to prove that they're sophisticated and knowledgeable. And the interesting part is that when you're talking to the venture capitalists, of course, they're not going to understand every space in the world. So what I find sometimes is that I, I tell the, the entrepreneurs, you need to dumb it down a little bit. You need to simplify it. <laughs> That's actually funny. Right? Because, because they, 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 you know, I remember when Idris and I were pitching, we were like, 
You know, there's no physical addresses. The VCs in America didn't understand what that meant. Mm. I mean, what does that mean to somebody who gets a letter every day by, by the mailman in their address? They don't, I mean, you can say it, but they don't feel it. They don't experience it. So I had to physically show them what that meant by actually creating a box <laughs> that I took with me on my pitches. And I literally put, you know, my name, Joy Ajloni, uh, Dubai, and the phone number. And I passed it around to the VCs when we were pitching. And they were like, what is this? I'm like, this is my address. And they were like, well, there is no address. I'm like, exactly. Well, they're like, how did you get the, how do you get the package? And I'm like, well, they dial the number and they, they walk you through it and they talk to you to deliver your package. And then they were like, aha. So I tell a lot of entrepreneurs, simplify the problem because don't assume that everybody understands what the problem is. And I think that's probably been one of the biggest advice that I, I the biggest advice I've given to a lot of startups. Mm. And so if, if you, if you look beyond the e-commerce space in, uh, in the UAE and kind of surrounding countries, I mean, what do you think are some other critical sectors within the startup sphere, you know, you, you feel are most important to really advance the, the future that you want to see in the region? Well, not a question. Logistics is a big one. Okay. It's a, it's a huge one. E-commerce is, but is that, is that, is that logistics from the startup lens or like, is there serious conversation needed about like new road material and like new solutions for development and infrastructure? You know, I think it's a combination of both. You know, the government has tried to create an address system, but the, the interesting part, uh, what I have learned really fast, which is interesting for your audience is that changing behavior is the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do. And if somebody is not used to using something, getting them to use it is, is a tough value proposition. There are no addresses. So even if you're giving an address, if it's not a language that everybody speaks, it's not going to be used. So I definitely feel that logistics uh, is, is a partnership. I think there, there definitely needs to be more technology in solving the problem. You know, I also think that there needs to be a, a situation where cash on delivery is no longer in existence. I think this is a big problem for the Middle East and North Africa. You know, I, I say this all the time to everybody who gets a delivery is that everything is done with cash on delivery in emerging markets and in Nigeria. I mean, I can tell you a stat, 95% of all the deliveries are cash on delivery, which means that you got to make sure that the person is home so you can collect the cash. Right. This is a language, you know, that everybody speaks in this region. And getting someone to change this behavior is really tough because getting into the, the next answer to your question is the banks are very tough value proposition. And, and I think fintech is definitely a segment that would do some crazy disruption in this region. I think what's exciting about the Middle East and North Africa is that it's such a green platform that so many startups can actually do amazing things to cause disruption because it's so badly needed. <laughs> you, you know? No, I know. I remember um, when I was in Kenya a couple of years ago and I ordered something off Jumia Food and I did a cash on delivery. And once I started to really think about just like, I mean, the, the accounting nightmare oh. that, that is, that is Jumia, especially in Nigeria oh, yeah. of just all these cash on deliveries and just like, ugh, 
you're dealing with cash. I mean, imagine you're getting millions and millions of dollars coming through your warehouse in cash. I mean, you know, even that when you, you know, when we used to talk to the venture capitalists in the States, and we'd be like, yeah, we've got, you know, we collect, you know, 20, 30 million dollars. They're like, what? (laughs) You know, you know, in in, in the United States. You know, you pay for a, a pack of bubble gum, which is 25 cents, whatever, 20, 30 cents with your credit card. Yeah, I know. I know. And so one thing that for sure is getting disrupted right now in the world is, is the whole concept of location and, you know, living and working in, in, in somewhere like Silicon Valley or New York. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think we're going to start to see, or I mean, we are, we are starting to see people leaving Silicon Valley for places like Austin, for places throughout the Midwest. And I think one of the most important factors to consider in these location uh, changes are going to be not only cost of living, but quality of living. And so I would love to finish off this interview just talking a little bit about like some of the nice things about living in, in some of the Gulf regions. Like I, I look at pictures of Bahrain and it looks absolutely beautiful. Like uh, I would love to be live, living right there on the beach. Like what, what do you enjoy most about actually living in, you know, Dubai, UAE and, and, and uh, some of the recreation things to do? Well, you know, this is, people ask me all the time. They're like, don't you miss California? Um, look, I think that, you know, I live in Dubai right now and Dubai is a very dynamic, fun place. Um, it's exciting. Um, and it's exciting for this reason. They have done an amazing job with, there's always something to do. You know, I noticed in California, like, you know, you go to bed, you go to bed at, at nine o'clock, you have dinner at six, seven o'clock, the restaurant's done at nine, right? Everyone's in bed. But here you go out to dinner at 10. And there's a lot of nightlife. There's a lot of, of, of international people from all over the world. There's always a concert. There's always a beach event. There's always, they, they do a really an amazing job to keep you entertained. It's almost like a Vegas. And the beaches are beautiful. So six months out of the year, the weather's tough, no question about it. But six months out of the year, it's absolutely the place to be. And I and I say that wholeheartedly. I think the best of both worlds is living half here and half uh, in in California, if I could say that. But the interesting thing that you said, Andrew, is now that they're doing a lot of work from home, a lot of people are not going to be needing to live in Silicon Valley, which is the highest housing prices on earth, as we both know. So a lot of people now can move to areas and have a better quality of life. Yeah. Um, because you can work anywhere. So that's the interesting part. Yeah. Right. Things are going to definitely change after COVID uh, as far as, as where are you going to live and, and the productivity that you bring to the table. I think that's probably going to be the one of the biggest things from COVID. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I was so excited to signed this new lease that I just did in DC on March 1st. And, you know, <laughs> now I'm just paying $2,000 a month to just kind of sit in my one bedroom and like the whole, the whole advantage of the location that I'm paying for is just kind of gone now. Um, and, and I have no idea when it's coming back. And so I think that's the case for a lot of people. And so yeah. I'm definitely, I'm, I'm definitely keen on Austin. I've been, I've been eyeing, I've been eyeing. Uh, I, I recently just came back from Austin and Austin is amazing. It's a lot happening. I love Austin. Um, but you know, Austin's not affordable. It's, it's, it's kind of like right. people have caught on Austin's, I mean, definitely it's less expensive, 
but I absolutely love Austin. They've got great restaurants, great food, great nightlife. Um, you know, Silicon Valley is a little dull. I, I, it's a it's a great place for a family, but it, it's it's a little it's a little bit of a bedroom community. Mm. Where Austin has life, for sure. So yeah, I agree with that. I agree. Well, Joy, this has been fantastic. Is there anything we did not cover that that you wanted to cover on on, on the conversation? No, not at not at all. Uh, you know, um, except uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to to um, to talk to me, and I hope that your audience got some some good feedback. Oh. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Let's finish off. I, I do want, give me an idea of like, what is, what is, cause, cause at some point I'm going to be coming to Dubai. So give me like an ideal night. Like what's a, what's a fantastic restaurant? Uh, what's a good bar? Like what, what, give me, give me a, a planned out nightlife. Vamos. It's the same one that is in Mykonos and it is a scene of epic proportion. Uh, it is, it is, it is the place to be. And it was the, the place to be before, uh, COVID came about. So without a question, Namas. And glad to show you around. Uh, Dubai is famous. It's, it's very small. It's not very big. So, um, glad to show you around. Is this your first time? It, it will be my first time. Yes, for sure. Oh, yeah. You're gonna- After some of the recent episodes I've done, I think Kuwait, Bahrain, and Dubai are like, I'm, I'm itching. I'm itching to get out to visit okay, you all. Bahrain is very quiet and it's very small. And, um, and Kuwait is also very small and family oriented. I think if you definitely want to see something special, I think you need to come to Dubai. And I think you need to do that, uh, in January. That's the best time to be here. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, um, yeah. all right. I'll, I'll take you up on that. 100%. Yeah, January. Well, I had to show you around, Andrew. Honestly, that that, that was sincere. That's not a. Uh, I don't say anything I don't mean. That's no, I know, sincere. I know, I know for sure. I'm in. I'm in. But uh, Joy, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.